the single most important piece of market psychology is your own. It's not as big a pyramid of leverage as 2000X. It doesn't involve the banks. It, in many ways, if you're a bold trader, you're much more a market psychologist than you are a market analyst. You know, even respectable newspapers like the Financial Times and the New York Times have, have abandoned you know, the highest standards or even basic standards of journalism. We're in unknown territory. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The eighth of my conversations features my friend and former employer, Steve Diggle, a man to whom I owe a debt of thanks for giving me that job that I can never repay. So instead of repaying his generosity, I thought I'd lean on it some more, this time to steal an hour of his time to talk about volatility, market psychology, gold, Italy, and the sheer hostility that surrounds us everywhere we look, and to try and figure out what all this means for investors in the COVID age. So please welcome my friend, Steve Diggle. Good evening to you. Yes, and a very good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. I know, I know, you're, I know you're up early normally, but, but thanks for taking the time to do this. It'll, uh, I'm sure it'll be enlightening for, for all the people tuning in uh, and the many who will watch this on the replay afterwards. Um, so much stuff I want to talk to you about. And the, the problem whenever you and I get a chance to talk is we ramble on forever. So I want to, I want to jump into a few things and, and, and tap into that brain of yours as, as soon as I can. The first thing I want to talk about um, is psychology market psychology and 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 because i know that's something that you spend a lot of time looking at and thinking about particularly in your background as a vol trader talk a little bit about how you see the market psychology you know how it's changed what that means and how that's affecting vol because i mean that's a big part of of kind of your background yeah you know um it, in many ways if you're a vol trader you're much more a market psychologist than you are a market um and an analyst. The psychology of the human participants in the market is the single most important thing for volatility because volatility is essentially a herd phenomena, right? I mean, how far, how fast is the herd moving? Um, you know, and what's causing it? Um, and if anyone is trying to be a better investor or a better trader, um, the single most important piece of market psychology is your own. And you know, you've been a trader and a fund manager, and you know that it's extraordinarily difficult to remain objective about, about anything, because as soon as you're involved, 
in anything, and you have, even if you have an opinion, but especially if you have a position, you lose that objectivity. And the truly great investors or traders you know, are the people who are able to un, who, who aren't able to to be completely objective because that's impossible. You're never going to be completely objective. But to understand the strains and biases that you're under allows you to intelligently offset the way that your fear and greed and your hopes and fears are going to be affecting the way you see things. So trying to understand your own psychological state is, and to, and to, and to put some objectivity into that is incredibly important. And right now with this scary, deadly virus in the world and everyone in a very unusual state, you're there locked in in, in Cayman, I'm semi-locked in, in here in um, lockdown here in Singapore, surrounded by an incessant flow of news about how everyone we know, we know and love is going to die. It's impossible to be in an objective mental state. Okay. And you know there was an article on the BBC, and I've asked everyone uh, at Volpez to who, who who deploys capital to read it because it's talking about the fear that that, it's, that that the coronavirus news, not the coronavirus, the coronavirus news has on your brain and the way it changes your opinions. And you can see it not just in the market, the market's what we're going to talk about, but in everything, in daily life, in political opinions, um, and in the way that people are reacting to things. So, do you, do you, you, I know you sent that to me. Do you remember the exact title of that? Because I know people I are going to read it. I've got it written there. Yeah, I've got my notes. Hang on. It's called The Fear of Coronavirus is Changing Our Psychology. It's there by you. David yeah. Robson. And it's on the BBC website. I, I say you sense, but I've read it. it. It's a fantastic reading, and everyone watching should should dig it out and read it. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure that we had that. So yeah, it's on. called the fear of coronavirus is changing our psychology. And they say it's not it's not about markets, but it, it's it's fairly. Uh, and and what it says is for those people who can't be bothered to read it, which is most people probably, is essentially that we're still tribal beings, right? One of the reasons why we fear diseases. Man's a social animal. We live in social groups. That's our power. That's our that's our secret um, power. We have this phenomenal verbal gift, some of us more than others, um, which allows us to, you know, to, to work socially incredibly powerfully. But with that comes this fear of disease, and it's ancient, and it expresses itself in a lot of ways. And when you expose people to the fear of disease, even just by watching a film like Pandemic or um, Contagion, or reading articles about about disease, or even uh, advocating people wash their hands more often. People have a change in psychology, psychological state. They become more fearful of outsiders. They become more obedient. They become more respectful of authority. They become more questioning of, of anything that's outside of their tribe. And, um, and you can see that right now going on in, in, in politics. You know, virtually every global leader, including Donald Trump, um, and especially Boris Johnson, have had a big bump in their approval numbers even ones where you could, where demonstrably people are doing a terrible job, um, which is quite a few people. It's most of them, yeah. But, but approval of government leaders always goes up in times of unknown crisis. You know, after 9-11, George Bush uh, Jr. had the biggest bump in approval ratings of any president ever polled, uh, even more than, than FDR after, um, after Pearl Harbor. 
and we're going through a similar thing now. Now, how long it lasts, whatever. But it, and, and that's, I mean, let's, let's not talk about politics, but let's talk about the fact that all of us are going through that. And the more articles you read on the coronavirus, the more extreme your psychology is going to be around and more and more different. So the most important thing for any trader or any investor to accept is you and I are not in a normal state. You're in a different state and you'll be seeing things differently. And that's a bias and you need to address it um, if you're going to think clearly. And the way I tried to do it is simply not read the, the press. Um, right. But, but, you know, it, but it's interesting though, because it, you know, it, bizarrely, the one state that we can actually get a handle on is our own. Now, we're one of the herd. We have no idea how the herd are thinking. We can observe patterns and charts and movements in markets and get a sense of it. But the one that we can actually have some genuine semblance of understanding of is the one that we fail miserably at because we assume we're not in a state, right? We assume that we're fine and we're not, everything's functioning normally at all times and there's nothing right. We, we, forget us, let's worry about what everyone else is doing. Yeah, sure. That's, um, that's in Joe Walsh's um, life's been good to me so far, right? What does he say? Um, it's so hard to handle all this fortune and fame. Everybody's so different. I'm still the same. Right, there you go. Exactly. So, so what are you doing? To, how, apart from not reading the news, what, what are you doing? No, no, not reading the news. Not reading the news is, 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 is not reading endless headlines of, of um, this could happen or may this may happen. The words could and may have appeared in way too many uh, newspaper headlines, right? This could be the, the worst recession since, since the Great Depression. This could kill more people than <clears throat> whatever. Um, you know, this may be, you know, the end of Western civilization. Yeah, it might, but you know, um, maybe not. So I'm trying to just limit how much I spend looking and reading news because it's not news, it's more like speculation. And I'm just focusing on data. <clears throat> and you know, Hugh Hendry was talking last week about the miserable job the world's press, the poor the state have done during this crisis because rather than try and deliver analysis, they've decided to go for clickbait and the more alarmist and scary the headline, the more clicks you're going to get. Um, and, and, and you know, even respectable newspapers like the Financial Times and the New York Times have have, have abandoned you know, the highest standards or even basic standards of journalism and gone and gone for this. So avoiding the press, I think, is you know, is a is a phenomenally powerful way of restore trying to restore your mental state. But there is lots of data out there and proper data. Now, some of the data is terrible and misleading. Um, but some of it is, is is okay, right? So the market move on a day, on a day that's 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 fact. Um, we're looking at mortality numbers, um, and we're actually you know extracting original mortality numbers, not death from COVID numbers necessarily, because that depends on correct um, you know correctly analyzing the cause of death. But if you just look at raw mortality numbers, how many people normally die? And by the way, this is. I mean, this ought to be every journalist's um, first thing. I mean, you know, 28,000 people die in China every day. So the fact that 3,500 people reportedly died of coronavirus is barely even a news story. I mean, it's like 10% of the normal death rate. 8,000 people in America die every day. It's a big country. So reporting X number of people die um, from coronavirus is a meaningless number. 
unless it's put in the context of how many people normally die. Um, and if you look at those numbers, and I, I send you them periodically because we, we are collecting them, the actual overall increase in, a, in, our, in our observable universe, the increase in mortality that we've had since the, since the start of February, which is really when the coronavirus started spreading outside of China, is 2%. So we're 2% above a normal um, mortality rate. Now, there's a counterfactual here, um, which is if we weren't doing this lockdown, then it would be much higher. Yeah. And yes, it would. But data, 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 data. That's, you know, data, 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 data. Everything else is just an opinion. Um, and a lot of it very uninformed. So I think that's the single most important thing I'd advocate anyone. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity now for traders or for, um, for investors. Um, but one thing you and I have spoken about uh, and experienced is it's very important to work out which of those you are. Yeah, and you, exactly right. And you, and you can be both at the same time, but making an investment and trading are different things. When you're trading, what you're trying to do is predict where the market psychology will go in three minutes, or three days, you know, but you know, probably realistically, not much longer than that. Right. Now, right now, there's definitely opportunities for traders um, because things are moving around so fast, uh, and, you, and, and, and there's huge amounts of volatility because expectations um, and attitudes are changing a lot. And also, there's a lot of distorting stimulus coming from governments and the Fed uh, and other central banks. But there's also a lot of great investment opportunities. Now, we've been doing both. We have been buying some blue chip stocks because we like the yield and we're basically putting them in the family office and locking them up forever. Um, and I can talk a bit about why we're doing that. And we don't care if those stocks go lower. What we care about is, is the business going to uh, return to some right. basis of normality and the, the level of payouts is going to return to some level. And it doesn't have to be this this quarter. <clears throat> On the no, other are these, hand, are these, also, in, are these European or US or which part of the world are you looking at? Or in Asia? Well, there's there's stuff everywhere in the world. Probably least of all in the US, actually, US. because the US has done the best, right? Um, and and you know, Nasdaq's down five percent this year. Now, after last night, it's like and after a phenomenally hot last year, right? Um, you know, there's, you're going to find fewer bargains there than you will in places in Europe where, where, where stocks have sold off a lot more aggressively. So, the Royal Dutch Shell, for example. Now, I know that you know oil's been a very particular, yeah. particular ride, but you know, they actually came out and said they'd try and maintain the dividend. Well, it was yielding over 10%. It got below 10 pounds. This is the Royal Dutch uh, Shell B shares in oh, the yeah. UK. Um, they got below 10 pounds for the first time since 1992. Um, and they bounced a bit since. DBS Bank here in Singapore, uh, Development Bank of Singapore, you know, is yielding 6%. Yeah. Um, it's a very well-run bank, sort of quasi-government guarantee. Um, it's not a terribly ambitious bank, very important. Uh, yeah. Nothing, yeah. nothing destroys banks exactly. like ambition. Uh, they don't I want to put my money in there, so God bless them. Um, you know, and that's in an environment where, you know, where Singapore bonds are yielding 1%. So... You can put your money in the bank and they'll pay you zero, or you can own part of the bank and they'll pay you 6%. Okay, that's yeah. pretty good. Um, 
you know, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 there are there are there are numerous uh, stocks that are yielding more than more than five percent, with a reasonably strong expectation that they'll be able to go back there. And one of the things that we're going to have to live with is yet again bonds lower for longer. Yeah. So if you are an investor and you're trying to work out how you're going to how you're going to deploy your capital and how you're going to use your capital to to make a living, which is what retirement is, you know, and Stephanie Pomboy was talking about the how this crisis is not going to help the retirement bomb one bit. People who have capital but no longer or increasingly less have labour um, yeah. to live off. That's what retirement is, right? I mean, one longer retirement. Secondly, much lower rates, and thirdly, you know, for the people arriving there, much less compounding going into it. So it's a catastrophe. So right now, if you are planning on, on retiring or you are retired yourself, there are you know, very respectable equities that will give ought to be able to give you a decent living from your capital. In a world where very little else will, bank deposits will pay you nothing, government bonds will increasingly pay you almost nothing. Yeah. Um, if you have capital and you're not and you and you don't want to trade, because that's a terrible way to uh, to try and get a make a living from your capital. Oof, yeah. Um, it's actually a good opportunity. But you know, um, I mean, we bought some Royal Dutch Shell, you know, at twelve pounds, and we're feeling good about that. Uh, you know, and then and then and then three days later, it's at nine. Right. Um, now. You know, my counsel to, to 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 the people involved in the decision was it doesn't mean the 12 is not, is not a good decision. Um, right. it just we just missed the lowest opportunity, and of course you don't you don't buy everything all at once. Um, but but, but we, we weren't looking to trade it. Now it's 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 bad six, but I don't want to talk about shell specifically. But there are lots of but the psychology of an investor is I don't care what happens. You know, I have I have paid X for Y. And the future returns of that will be good enough for me. Um, now, if it shoots up, you've got an opportunity to take a profit if that's what you want. But in a way, if the, if the company goes private and it never trades again, you ought to be happy with your decision. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't keep looking at it every five minutes if you right. thought it for 10 years. But let, let, me, let me ask you, because it's something you said to me um, a, a few weeks ago when we, when we were chatting over email. Um, you know, you said that you, you were, I could almost feel you rubbing your hands together at, at, at some of the things that you were seeing opportunities to get involved from a trading standpoint, looking back to your R trader days and, and the vol trade. Uh, what were you seeing in that side of the market? How was it similar to 08? How was it different to 08? What's, what, what's got you all kind of interested in that space again? Well, you know, we started to think that we, we got the coronavirus quite early here in, in Singapore. Uh, from, directly from people who came, flew here from Wuhan. You know, we got one of the biggest, biggest, biggest um, airports in the world here, and, and we have a lot of mainland Chinese people who spend spend some or a lot of time here. So, uh, both as tourists and as, as semi-residents. So, we were exposed to it pretty early, and, and I was getting concerned about the effects both on China and the region um, in mid-February. In fact, I exchanged some emails with you and um, our good friend David Tice. Who was uh, he? Of uh, once upon a time, of the prudent bear, who was getting very bearish in mid February, um, and that by, at that time, you know, coronavirus was in the world, right? It wasn't just in China, but markets were bumping up against their all-time highs, and volatility was very, very cheap. 
still. I mean, we've had so many years where things have gone, particularly 2019, where things have gone so well. So VAR was very cheap. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, when it started to spread to Europe, people got very scared very quickly. So we went from this period of enormous complacency, and then we had this explosion of, of, um, of VAR. And then the market went into this crisis with way too much leverage, way too much complacency, and... Um, and way too much, um, and way too much debt. And in that sense, it's like 2008. It's not as big a pyramid of leverage as 2008. It doesn't involve the banks, and the banks have kind of missed this crisis, really, right? Whereas in 2008, they were there for centre. So there's one big difference here. Um, this is going to be a demand shock. Uh, this is going to be a lack of activity in the markets. Uh, you know, in, in, in real markets. Um, economic markets, not financial markets. A lot of activity in financial markets, much less in you know, decline. Whereas 08 was a debt crisis, right? Very much centered on the banks. And that was big. I mean, everyone was enormously le leveraged, right? I mean, Lehman Brothers went under with, what, 3% uh, capital, you know, um, probably about 60 times levered. But, you know, even banks that were considered to be conservative, like UBS, were 50 times leveraged. Or at least they were during every day except the end of the quarter when they reported their numbers to the Fed. Now, the, that, was a, that was a gargantuan amount of leverage. And the fact that it was in the banks made it, made, that it, was, it, was, it was much bigger and it was much more systemic. And it, it, it had flowed everywhere. Here, the leverage was much more specific in things like ETFs. So a, a class of investor or, or trader was enormously leveraged. A lot of those retail investors were enormously leveraged through things like leveraged ETFs, um, probably have more leverage. And that's what caused this big spike in vol. And if you look at the VIX, and I think you've got a, you've got a chart there, you can see that we have just about matched the highs of 2008. Yeah, so that's the VIX, which is a, a, essentially a measure of, a, of, of slightly out of the money near dated S&P puts. Um, it's a very difficult thing to train, but it's it's a good measurement of where ball is going, and you can see that huge spike from this long trough. Let's see, yeah, there, there we go. That's that's going back. That's going back all the way, so you can see the 08 spike, uh, and then put this one. So in right in the middle, right in the middle of that is that spike in um, in 2008, September 2008, the Lehman event. Um, in, um, in there in uh, September October when it got to 90, this crisis we've got to 82. We're all the way back to 37 now. So now the interesting thing about the VIX is you can see that, <clears throat> I mean, there's periodic spikes. We went very low in the build-up to 08 on complacency. Nothing bad was ever going to happen again. We went pretty low in the build-up to this one. So that's another similarity. Um, yeah. Now, the, the thing to remember about the VIX is that um, it's a measure of fear, right? It's how much you're prepared to pay for these puts. Now, the VIX topped out in October of 2008. The market didn't bottom until March 2009. So five months after the VIX reached its height, the market bottomed out. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, just because the VIX is coming off doesn't mean the market's bottomed. Yeah. The other thing that was critical about 08 is going to be different is actually the, um, is, is the solution. Now, in 2008, because it was a banking crisis, um, you know, Hank Paulson was able to get basically 12 guys in a room, you know, and that's in Roger Lowenstein's, you know, book, um, 
you know, and tell them they're going to take this 800 billion TARP money and no questions asked. And, you know, that meeting is definitely the start of the recovery. Because this is an economy-wide demand problem, you can't get 12 guys in a room and start to solve the problem, right? No. It's everybody's problem, right? You can't get 300,000 bartenders and cafe owners in a room and, and give them $800 billion. So, so Although if you send the invitations out, I, I reckon a few would show up. <laughs> well, look, here's, a, here's an interesting thing about, you know, we're seeing this huge market bounce, right? I mean, say huge market bounce. And a lot of that's down to the Fed, because whereas the government is inevitably going to be slow, and they can announce a $2 trillion package um, in Congress, but the actual speed with which the money gets in people's pockets is going to be very slow, apart yeah. from the um, checks directly into your bank. Big, big business have an enormous advantage right now, because... Look, and you can, actually, you can actually literally see it in the bond market. The Fed is in there buying 30, 40, 50 billion dollars of treasuries. And you can see real money selling into that, into that bid um, all across the curve. And every day, big business is coming up with billion dollar bond deals to, to sell to those, to, those, to those people who are selling their treasuries. So if I'm Anheuser a bush, I've just issued six billion dollars worth of bonds. I don't even have to think what I'm going to do with the money. You know, that's in my pocket right now. If you're a cafe owner and you're shut, and you're trying to work out how to get through to June. You know, there's talk about government support, but where's the money? I mean, you're going to be bust beforehand. So I think we're going to see a you know a big, but it's just much 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 better to be a big company able to issue a bond today and have yeah. the money today than to have talk of, well, maybe, you know, we'll offset some of your salary and maybe this, and maybe that. And there's all, as inevitably with government programs, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think that's a, that's a big difference, which is that the solution to this crisis is going to be much harder because it's so much broader. Now, obviously, we, we saw what happened in, in like we saw how the market recovered. Uh, the market and the economy, the economy, the economy bounced back pretty quickly. When you look at the charts, you'll see it's a, you know, it's a V bottom, the, the famous V bottom. Um, when you look at this, it's, it's a wholly different animal. How do you see this recovery playing out? I mean, people want to talk about all kinds of letter shapes. How do you, how do you game, game plan it? I just, I think it's totally, it's totally uncertain. That's not very helpful, except that we can't know. Um, there's, you can play out various scenarios. Now, one thing, I mean, economists, and I used to, you know, try train to be one, are terrible at predicting even the short-term future. Now, one thing that, um, so here's, so here's an example of history that you and I are just old enough to remember, um, which I studied when I was at Oxford, which is in 1974, um, and yes, we're, we are old enough to remember that just. Just the in, in December uh, 1973, the British uh, National Union of Mine Workers. But this was back when Britain had um, a, a coal mining industry, and that, 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 that fueled almost all of Britain's power stations. They went on strike. On January the first, the Conservative government of the time went under what was called a three-day week, um, and essentially. Um, Industry was only allowed, because Britain was still an industrial power at that time, was only allowed power um, three days on a week. And each people, you know, people had different days. 
it was a big, the power station equivalent of what they're trying to do with hospitals now, which is you're trying to lower right. that. So, <clears throat> so economists, being not a very imaginative bunch, said, well, British GDP will be down 40% in the first right. quarter. Because right. it, ran to the, it ran to the 7th of March. It ran from the 1st of January to the 7th of March, 1974. So the average consensus was it'll be down 40%. Some people were higher, some people were lower. But, you know, but it came in, drum roll, negative 2.4%. And consumption was only down 1.7. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying that's going to happen this time, but, and then within 10 days of those numbers coming out, every economist was going, well, of course, this happened. Well, of course, that happened. Right, of course, right. work carried on from home, and people were, you know, were much more productive during the time they had. And, and there was, you know, and then there was overtime around. So, of course, consumption didn't collapse. I mean, you know, to come in with negative 40 and, and have a result of negative 2.4 is quite a bad miss. It doesn't actually in any way dent economists' complete confidence that they're going to get the next one right. Correct. We just don't know, Graham. I mean, we have no idea. Um, yeah, but is, is the danger that? Is the danger that there's a positive surprise? Because uh, to your point, right, today we've seen the IMF say worst uh, period since the Great Depression. We've seen in the UK... Britain's worst economic shock for 300 years, going back to 1709. Is, is the, the outlier here, you know what, it doesn't fall as much as I thought. I mean, because it's hard to see that when you look at a complete shutdown of everything. Well, it's not a complete shutdown of everything. I mean, you're working, I mean, apparently. I mean, this is, this is you working, apparently. I mean, I'm working, apparently. Um, you know, and awful lots of people are getting stuff done. And the lesson from 1974, and no one's talked about it, um, is that, a lot of stuff gets done when it needs to get done. Now, I think what's unusual here is that, what's unusual here is that pe pe people have been sent home, right? It's, now, you know, by the way, um, I know this, is, this will be extraordinary for people in America with their, with their work ethic, but you know, we have a shutdown in Europe every year for 30 days when everyone goes home and nothing happens. It's called August, right? Now, we don't, we don't have a global depression every August in Europe, even though no work gets done. I mean, literally nothing, right? You, you get nothing done in, in August in Europe. But every bar and every cafe is heaving. I mean, that's, that's Well, that's true. That's true. And people, and people are spending money. So, so, so maybe that's not a good example. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just worth, I mean, we have periodic, you know, periods where very little economic activity happens. So there's a, there's a possibility. It's a possibility is worse. But there's a comparison with war, which I find annoying. Now, War is a catastrophe. Um, I think it's, it's a catastrophe on a, you know, on a, on a moral and, uh, and human scale. But if you think about, so uh, we've, been, we've been talking about this at Volker. So think about, the, there are four economic effects of, of war. One is you stop your productive capacity and you build destructive capacity, right? So you stop your building commercial airlines, you build bombers. You stop building tractors, you build tanks. You stop you building fertilizer, you build explosives. Secondly, your young men, and I don't mean to be sexist, but historically, your young men then stop work and go somewhere that's not productive. Thirdly, those, those things that you've built and those young men go off and destroy other people's productive capacity. They despoil their land, they bomb their cities, they kill their young men. Um, and so there's fewer of them to come back. And then fourthly, 
nations borrow an enormous amount of, of money and go colossally into debt. Yeah. <clears throat> and when those the, the, when the survivors return, they come back to find much less infrastructure, fewer people in the workforce, because a lot of them are dead or injured, and a mountain of debt. In this case, every productive person has gone home. Now, some of them get stuff, go home, some of them can't. All that infrastructure is still there, 100% of it. Not one iota of the infrastructure has been damaged. Yes, there'll be cafes and bars will close, but the building will still be there. Um, the franchise might be damaged, but um, but we will have this mountain of debt. <clears throat> yeah. The idea that this will be a, a small, a greater economic dislocation than the Second World War for Europe is laughable. I mean, it's just another example of how anti-fragile we are these days. Nothing bad can ever happen to us. I mean, you know, Germany was like Africa poor in 1945. Right, Every, right. The Japanese um, merchant marine fleet in 1945 was zero. Was zero. I mean, every single Japanese um, boat that could float was at the bottom of the ocean, so sunk, sunk by the American um, marine and submarine fleets. That's just not where we are now, right? Every single Japanese, every single boat in the world um, is still afloat. Now, it's not doing very much, right? But right. so we don't know. But I think, you know, it's almost pointless to speculate. Um, you have to bear an, uh, a real range of, 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 of potentialities. I think the much more interesting question is not when do we go back to work, but when we do go back to work and we can honestly say there is a very high level of confidence that we will be back at work and things will be will have a resemblance of normality. I think the really interesting question is what will have changed permanently? Yeah. Um, because that's where the real new opportunities are going to be. Um, what what you know what what are people going to do differently or more of? And what will what will people do less of? And that and I think that for an investor, that's an exciting um, you know, that's an exciting uh, range of opportunities. Um, because clearly Everyone's doing everything digital. This, for example, right? This is yep. new. I'm going to a digital wine tasting tomorrow night. Um, right. Having the wine delivered, and the winemaker is going to have a Zoom conference and talk us through the wine. Um, you know, everyone's shopping online. Um, you know, uh, electronic signatures, right? Banks have always been fighting that. That's going to that's come in a lot faster. What, what did you do in the lockdown, Daddy? <laughs> well, I have my own project. I have my own project. I think everyone, everyone needs a project during lockdown, right? So my two projects are, I'm going to try, I'm trying to get my, my time for my six kilometer run or jog these days down. Um, and I'm, I'm working through my wine cellar. So I've got a, once again, I've got a barbell approach. You know, in the mornings I'm focusing on, on trying to get, <laughs> knock a few seconds off my, my 6K run. And in the evening I'm, I'm working through my uh, substantial wine cellar, which I've been saving for a rainy day. And I think, you know, this is it. Um, and, and, um, and let, see, see, let, let me ask you, because oh, you, you, there you go. You mentioned this is what I did during the lockdown. Look, here's something. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Look, we're out of focus, but we, we, we can't see the labels. But I, I know you well enough to know that they're good labels. But um, a couple of things that you, you talked about there, and one of them is is conflict. And this is something you and I have, have talked about, this, this pervading sense of conflict everywhere around us, whether it's left and right and whether it's old and young. And you, and you said something to me when we chatted the other day that was, that was very interesting about this, this um, intergenerational conflict. 
that this situation is is kind of amping up. Talk, talk a little bit about that, because it, it was really interesting. Well, you know, I learned a lot about this from you, um, you know, and, and listening to, to Neil Howe, um, you know, and, and I'd really like you to get him on, because I think, you know, from a fourth turning perspective, this is a fascinating, um, fascinating example. Look, this, this virus overwhelmingly kills retirees, right? I mean, if you actually look at the data in, so we looked at the data in Lombardy, which is this area of northern Italy around Milan that's been easily the worst affected part of Italy. And you can actually look at, you can actually get, go to the original mortality data and look at it. The mortality between January the 1st and, and March 27th, which is when we have the latest data, shows a 1.1% increase in the number of deaths amongst women under 65. 1.1% increase, negligible. I mean, really, that's a traffic accident. 2.9% amongst men over 60, uh, under 65. A 59% increase in the mortality rate of men over 65 and a 37% increase in women over 65. Right. So right. everything, that, we, everything that, 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 that the newspapers are talking about is actually true. This virus kills retirees, and especially the over 75s. And we are crashing the global economy for a period, we don't know how long, and putting millions of people out of work and closing millions of people's businesses in order to protect retirees. It's a classic baby boomer versus millennial yeah. dilemma, right? And, you know, this, these rather um, distasteful jokes about the coronavirus being the boomer doomer or the boomer remover. It's true. Yeah. You know, this thing does not um, substantially need to, I mean, it's, it's, look, it's a terrible disease and you don't want to make light of it, but the actual number of people in the workforce who are dying from this is de minimus. And these you know, people looking at where well, we looked at data going you know, on the Black Death and it led to, led to a significant increase in labor. 40% of the European workforce died in the Black Death between 1348 yeah. and, and, and 1353. 40% of the workforce. So far, almost nobody in the global workforce has died. But all young people are being forced to suffer economic catastrophe because they have the very little savings and also, um, in order to protect their grandparents. So, right. you know, as, they, yeah. as a fourth turning intergenerational conflict, the coronavirus is like, I mean, you couldn't, or you almost couldn't imagine a more extreme example. Um, but what does, it, what does it take for that to manifest, do you think? Because well, you're right. I, you know, I, it, it, I, I, I'm not qualified to say. I mean, you get, 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 get Neil Howe on and, and, and let's find out from him. Because he's, yeah, he's a guy who... I'll give him a call. He's a guy who really would have an interesting perspective on this, but it's there. And I think the, the other, you know, this is part of one of the things this coronavirus is doing is exacerbating some of these global tensions. And, you know, the, the intergenerational one is one. Um, you can clearly see a tangible increase in hostility between China and America. And this is something also covered um, by Real Vision you know, Graham Allison's Thucydides trap. Yeah. A conversation um, was 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 just fascinating, um, and and you could see it. I mean, it's just in the headlines. And this is a this is a clash of systems, right? This is the clash of civilizations. China saying our approach is best. America saying no, our approach is best. Um, you know, it's a you know this could have been an an opportunity for cooperation. Um, 
but instead it's been an opportunity for an increased level of hostility. And one that we've talked about in the past and um, even um, gone on an on-site visit is the tension in the European Union between, yes, which I wanted to ask you about. between the southern indebted nations and the northern saving nations, or, you know, in essence, Italy versus Germany. Um, and that, and once again, this virus has significantly exacerbated that tension to the point where the chances that this is a, um, that this is the beginning of the end of the European Union, as we know it, have gone up a lot. Um, you know, we were in Italy in December 2018. Talking about the level of tensions in Italy. Now, one of the things that we've got to remember is that the world went into this virus very late in the cycle, right? We had had it's a, it was an ex, we'd already started to turn down. You could feel it in 2019, which is why the 2019 equity rally was so crazy. Um, and Italy, in particular, was clearly going already going into recession. So you've got a country already going in back into recession. Um, with too much debt, um, uh, and um, uh, you know th this is putting an enormous pressure on, on on Italian society and Italian indebtedness, and um, all of those pleas for uh, European bonds um, and for more Europe, you know, pan-European stimulus have just become that much louder and that much more widespread. So the situation in Italy has clearly deteriorated a lot. The PMI is telling you that it, this is real. We're going to see a severe recession. Now, unfortunately for Italy, um, the place where that's the most productive, the north, is the part that's been very badly affected. So um, it's going to be a really tough few months for Italy. Um, and its balance sheet is already very poor. Um, and a lot of people in Italy, a lot more people than, than, in, than in December 18, when the Five Star Movement and, and the League were trying to form this coalition of, of, um, of oddballs, unsuccessfully as it turned out. Um, but a lot more mainstream people are like, if we can't have European bonds, what's the point of being part of the European Union? What do we get out of it? And this, and this, this surge in nationalism has been everywhere. It's been in the US, it's been in the UK, it's, it's been in China. It's been very pronounced in Europe. The, the speed with which the European Union has basically stopped being listened to, it's extraordinary. Right. I mean, the European, the re European Union is sitting out this crisis. By the way, Belgium is having an even worse crisis than Spain and, um, uh, and Italy. You don't see anything on, on Belgium, but, but Belgium is actually very badly affected by the coronavirus. But, um, I mean, you know, the European Union is effectively shut down, right? I mean, they were saying, no, we need to keep international borders open. Everyone, no, we're not going to do that. By the way, you, you can't bail out your your you know, your national industries unless right. you know our permission. Everyone's like, says to hell with that. So this surge in nationalism, um, you know, which is which is obviously um, anathema to to the the ideologues in Brussels. But you don't you don't hear anything about about Brussels. Uh, I mean, it's effectively ceased to exist as a form of government, just like because people have ignored it. So I think you know those people who were who were waiting to see what it might be that would actually kill the European Union. You know, this I, I was a lot more skeptical in, in, in December 18 when yeah. we were in You were a lot more, um, you know, I think you, you, were, you were definitely more of the side that 
the tensions in this system will pull itself pull itself apart. I'm much more in your camp now than than I was. I think um, yeah. you know if this crisis doesn't abate quickly, it is hard to see how we go back to a European Union that was um, that was as it was before. Well, unless once it once it does go away, they very quickly do come together and say, right, it's gone now. The cleanup, we're all going to have to throw it. But I just, I just, I struggle to see that happening. Well, because you know, Netherlands and especially Germany just find you know pooling of 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 debt anathema. And you know, uh, we want a European Union. We want a euro currency. We don't want euro bonds. Um, well, that means Italy's paying you know whatever two hundred basis points more than. Germany for for ten year money and uh, and they can least afford it. So so so, so when, when you when you think through that, um, you know, is the, the the trade that you put on a number of years ago in earning uh, owning German assets with euro denominated debt? I mean, is that still? It sounds to me like that's an even better trade to put on now if you still can. Oh yeah, no, no you certainly still can. You certainly still can. But the hunt for yield is is, is going to be global, right? I mean, you know, the hunt for this. As of yesterday, and I haven't checked this morning, though I check it every day, is I look at tips. I look. I, the tips tells me more about yeah. money than anywhere else in the world. Every, tips are negative now out to 30 years. And that's saying that people's assumptions for a generation, money's going to give you passive money at the risk-free rate is going to be below inflation, out to 30 years. So the hunt for yields. Now, last, the last time we did this, in the, in, you know, between 2015 and 2020, the hunt for yield went, went to junk. Um, and we've seen the consequences of that. And I think, you know, the, the consequences in the junk bond market, unless the Fed's buying your bonds, are going to be much worse than they are in the equity market. Um, because but that, but, that, but that, that, that tips curve suggests to me that the thing everybody should be worried about is inflation. If, if, if people are saying there's nothing to worry about for 30 years out. So, so, so let's talk about inflation, because, again, this is something mm -hmm. that after 09, you were one of those people, and you know we all thought inflation is good. But you were one of the guys who actually went out and did something about it, but in a, in again a smart way by by buying productive assets, you know your, your farm portfolio. How, how are you thinking about that with inf with inflation a potential danger on the horizon? Well, this is a classic example of the fact that we all doubt ourselves because the people who really felt that inflation was going to be a problem. Uh, in, 08 and, and, and after 08 and 09, and, and you and I were two of them, we got it completely wrong. Now, everything that you see the Fed doing right now, and every central bank in the world, pouring liquidity, European, European Union much less, but poor, I mean, just you know, bigger intervention than, than 08, tells us with, no, remember, all that capacity is still there, right? None of it's gone away. Um, so all of the extra money, the entire workforce is, is furloughed right now, so you can't really see what's, what its potential is. And all of that infrastructure is suspended, but it's still there, it's not war. Uh, we don't have to rebuild it. Um, when that comes back and we've got more money in the system, classical economics would say, we're gonna see an inflation bump, right? Too much money chasing too few goods. Now we doubt ourselves because we got 0809 wrong. Yeah, it's a great point, yep, it's a great point. Um, but all of the reasons we had in 08 and 09 are back again and better and purer. So I think, you know, if, if you're not making a provisional for inflation, um, you're very complacent. Um, yeah. Now, <clears throat> on the one hand, we got the inflation argument wrong. On the, on the other hand, 
finding alternative sources of income and needing those, we got right because bonds stayed lower for longer um, and, and have. Now, the capital gain from your bonds was great, but your income problem has been lousy. And it's been lousy for 10 years, for, for, certainly from government bonds, from government bonds. And it's going to be that way for another 10 years. So alternative sources of income are, you know, are, are, are even more important. And that means real estate, easily, purely. Um, you know, if we don't assume that levels of economic activity can be permanently depressed, and I don't, real estate, though you might seriously consider what happens to retail um, uh, yeah. real estate if everyone's shopping online more, maybe that sticks around. You might also worry a little bit about some of your marginal office um, real estate. You no, know, no, we, we work. We work on take all that stuff on. Don't worry. <laughs> There's a great business model. Um, you know, let's let's have long-term long-term leases on short-term and short-term tenants. Um, but you know, I mean, people people will find that they have satisfactorily work from home uh, and and maybe don't need that 90-minute commute every day. Um, you know, maybe. But, but this is this is why the this is why the farm trade is so interesting to me because. You, you know, you, you sit there and you can talk about, yeah, we got the inflation trade wrong. But if you went and bought a farm, if you went and bought productive farmland as an inflation hedge, what you ended up with was a real asset, which has doubtless increased in value, and coupons every year in the form of harvest. I mean, you know, you and I spoke about this at length. <coughs> well, you don't almost get, 10 years ago you, now. You, but don't get, you, don't get, you don't necessarily get coupons every year, right? This isn't a bond, right? I mean, you're dealing no, with... Nature. No, no. And, and the weather is changing. I mean, we have a harvest, we have a we have an avocado um, orchard in New Zealand, New Zealand's largest avocado orchard. And the last two years, we haven't had income at all. I mean, last year we had an unprecedented level of hailstorms, um, literally unprecedented, um, which damaged our fruit. We still got enough fruit off to get a small amount of, of income, but you know, not not significant. Um, the previous year. You know, we'd had just too much rain. So climate change is, is definitely um, causing an increase in volatility of returns in agriculture. Um, on the other hand, you know, our year of growing ranch has been, has been abnormally productive. So you need a portfolio. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get, returns from agriculture are, are decent across the asset class and much better than much much better than than, than, than government bonds and uh, with an inbuilt inflation hedge. But it's not um, it's not easy, and and you no, will get no. large amounts of volatility. Um, you're not going to get a coupon every ninety days. So I, I'm I'm very I, I'm the the farm trade is working out for us, but it's working out on a very long time time scale. And you can't change your mind. Once you no. own it, you've got it, and you've got it for ever. I mean, effectively. I mean, in timescales, we're, we're planning the 2030 harvest now. Yeah. In terms yeah. of trees, right? We're putting in trees that will be productive in five years' time and fully productive in, in 10. I mean, that's a time scale that, that, that not even industry thinks about. So... Um, but is, is that one? Of, is that one of the outcomes of this? Do people, because of this virus and what happens, you know, I, I, I sit there and think about this, and, and it strikes me that an expansion of time horizons might actually be one of the things that comes out of this. People will realise that we do have to have a, a longer term plan because if our plan is in the short term, and this happens, we're done. If we don't have the resilience to get through a period like this, 
you know, I, 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 that's my hope is that longer term planning and longer term strategies will actually make some kind of comeback after this. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, look, I mean, clearly those advocates about, of, of, of anti-fragility, you know, people who are saying the system was too fragile. I mean, we've had a, we've had, this has been a very severe and very sharp and very rapid lesson in fragility, whether it's the strength of your supply chain, how much inventory you're holding in your business, um, how much, um, how much capital buffer you have in your you know, in your business or your personal bank account, how much cash you're holding at home, how many gold or silver coins you have in your in your house <clears throat> um, for Americans, how many rounds of ammunition you have in your ammunition store. You know, I mean, but this is, a, you know, how many, how many cans of, you know, the, 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 these preppers who have been laughed at for, um, for a long time in American media are actually in a really good position right now, right? Um, so I think... You know, I'd be surprised if we didn't see a change in psychology about uh, around fragility, um, and that includes supply chain. I think you know one of the big change, changes here is like the degree to which we've been dependent upon um, an international supply chain, and you know, in some cases, complete dependence upon people who you see as increasingly hostile to you. Right, the degree to which America, yeah. incredibly dependent upon imported pharmaceuticals from China has been a lesson to America and America will learn that lesson. Um, we will see more focus on, um, we can't rely on international trade. You know, when, when, the, when things get tough, if you're making face masks, you're keeping them in your nation. Yep. Um, and so, so I think, you know, and I, everyone's personally gonna do that, right? I mean, um, you know, garden centers in the UK are, we're reporting a record increase in the level of buying of um, seeds for um, yep. things, but not, but not, but not for flowers. Um, it's you know, it's it's vegetables. And, yeah. So yeah. this we're going to see a record amount of um, of people in their gardens, you know, putting in their own putting in their own uh, vegetable um, store. Will it make a difference? It'll make a psychological difference. So you know, will that change people's levels of savings rates? People thinking they need more, probably, right? I mean, so. So I think those are those are definitely things you want to you want to think about both for opportunities and for and for threats. But the most important thing is working with a range of outcomes. Nobody has a clue what happens yeah. here. Yeah, we're in un we're in un we're in unknown territory, and you know trying to inform yourself through the press has just been hopeless because all it does is is make you terrified, um, and. You know, uh, you know, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a great optimist in human ingenuity. Um, we haven't had time to talk about biotech, which is our single largest investment, and doing, um, and doing quite well. And, and, you know, I think, you know, we will get a vaccine for this uh, virus pretty soon. I, you know, I confidently predict before the end of this year, there will be a vaccine. Uh, and I speak to that from from being slightly on the inside in, in, in at least one of our investments that's working with a vaccine company out of Oxford University and the Jenner Institute. But there are hundreds of, there's, there's at least 200 other initiatives going on around the world. So, you know, uh, this virus, may, we, the only way to deal with this virus probably will be a vaccination, a massive global vaccination program. It's probably the only way to accelerate herd immunity. Um, and um, I'm pretty confident we'll get there. Um, and then by 2021, we'll we'll say uh, we'll be thinking, well, that wasn't so bad. Um, 
but certain things will have changed. I mean, out there right now, there is something that is just lying on the ground, probably down 30, 40%. Everyone's forgotten about it. It's going to go up 20-fold. When everyone goes, well, yeah. of course, the right play was this. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like, and that's fun. But the most important thing for any business and any investor and any trader is to get from here to there. Um, how do you get through this chasm? Um, and for in terms of income, it's going to be a chasm. Well, that, that, that thing that's that thing that's potentially lying on the ground, um, it, it, it definitely isn't gold. But I have to ask you about gold because A, we've been talking about inflation. B, uh, people have been putting it in the comments stream. And B, I'm always interested in your thoughts on gold because you, you know you and I have talked about gold long into the night many, many times. So I'm curious as to as to where you are on it now. So I, I know you've been you've got interested. In, I've got a couple of charts here that I'm going to bring up in gold. Let me have a look. Hold on. Uh, where are we? What have we got here? Yeah, here we go. So this is this is just the, the last sort of. That's a, that, that's a beautiful chart. Now, the interesting thing about gold, you know, is it went down, right? I mean, because people had to sell everything because they had no money, right? So that, so the interesting thing about gold is it didn't work in 08, um, but it worked like a charm after, um, almost too well, right? Got got a bit ahead of itself. Yeah. Gold's a pretty easy trade right here now. Now now I just see gold as money. You kind of taught me this. Gold is gold is gold is cash. Um, but it's cash that's inflation resistant and it's cash that's hard to produce. Right now, cash in the form of dollars or yen or euros or pounds are very easy to produce and governments are producing them in record amounts. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you want some gold? You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, uh, if, if, you're, if you're going to be raising cash and you're going to think, I need more cash now um, because the world isn't, isn't as robust as it was before and, I, that, and my anti-fragility trade is I need more cash, why wouldn't you have gold as a significant part of that cash holding? We've been increasing our gold holdings um, from February onwards. And um, we got a little bit of a panic dip, just like we did in 08. Gold sold off pretty aggressively in March in the, I'm going to sell everything. Look at that beautiful dip from like seven month high to, to, um, to the lows below 1500. Now, the way we've specifically done it um, is, we, we see ourselves as perpetual buyers of gold um, and, and buyers into any dip. And the way we do that is we sell out of the money puts on, on gold, relatively short dated, uh, three months. Right. And, and we use um, that income to buy out of the money calls. Um, so our view is if gold falls, we'll buy it. So we want to, be, to have the gold put to us. Now, you very up, and you're absolutely right. You, you always make the point there is a big difference between the price of gold and the gold price. And the gold price, yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. You need some gold, physical gold, in your possession. And if you're a very rich guy, uh, call Simon Mikhailovich and, and, and have your physical <laughs> gold, or Mr. Ferguson, and have your gold you know, in the store. But everyone needs a bit of gold. In terms of personal, if you're preparing for the worst, Gold coins and also silver coins in yep. your possession is just a good idea. It's a nice thing to have anyway. But silver coins for daily expenditure, you know, an ounce, an ounce of silver is about twenty bucks. That's a twenty dollar bill. Um, you know, a hundred gram bar of gold is is your store of wealth. But you need both. But in terms of your portfolio, dollars will do well in the short term. We've got yeah. I mean, that's an easy trade as well. The world's borrowed too many dollars. It's going to have to. It's going to have to have. Um, it's going to have to pay some of those back. You know, 
of all the currencies in the next couple of months, dollar is probably an easy bet. But the Fed is producing a humongous number of these things. And, you know, by today, what's going to be scarce tomorrow, the dollar isn't it. Um, we like the dollar in the short term and we use the dollar because it's still the global currency. But there's a day when it will come when it won't be. And then, yeah. and then that's the end of the dollar ball market. Um, in the meantime, you know, look, gold is, a, gold is your cash. Hoarding gold is like hoarding cash. You've got to wonder why you're hoarding, hoarding it, though. For me, gold is, gold is a store of value. Yes, great. And it's cash. And it's cash that governments can't monkey around with. And where we have cash, we want gold. Um, and, and if pay, someone pays you to, um, to take on um, that cash, you know, to buy cash for less than par, you know, we'll do that. So, so buying, selling out of the money puts has been a good strategy for us this year. Volatility really spiked in everything during March. Yeah. And we were selling <clears throat> super expensively in, um, in gold in March. And, and that was kind of crazy if you think about it, because if the world was going to hell, gold wasn't going down. So a vol spike in gold connected to a vol spike in everything else. Right. I mean, that's kind of like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, gold is not going to collapse um, unless it really is the end of civilization, which it isn't. So gold for me is, is, is a gold for me is, 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 is a, is, is a trade that's, that's, you want to have some, some, some gold anyway. You probably want to have more gold than anywhere. If I want to take a bet on the best performing currency of the next five years, it would be gold. Now, a question came through but, earlier on. I, so, I mean, ultimately, I mean, unless you actually really do believe that society is, is going to grind to a halt, the gold's only good as cash. Right? It's, it's, it's a very good form of cash, but you've got to go out and spend it in something productive um, and something that's going to, that's going to, that's going to grow. Um, and gold won't do that for you, right? Gold, the, the price may, 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 may go up, and, but it's a great preserver of value. It's not a tremendous builder of value. No, but it's about to say there's a purchasing power that it that it that it that it protects for you. It can be you know, the difference, right? I mean, that's that's what's happened many times before in these inflationary periods, whether it's the deflation <clears throat> in the 30s or 70s. It's just that purchasing power, that ability to still buy either the same or more of tomorrow what you can today, and that's. Yeah, no, look, I, I think I think right, right, right here. I mean, if, you know, if, even if it's just for technical reasons, it just looks like a pretty easy yeah. trade. And 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 in terms of risk and reward, downside versus upside, you know, that's it's probably the easiest trade in the world right now. I mean, it's just going to yeah. have a lot more upside than downside. Yeah, no, I, I agree. No, I've been too wrapped up with this. I realise we've gone we've gone too far, we've gone too long. But there's a question that came through earlier on that I, that I want to ask you about because this is something when you and I talked about your experience in 08, um, has always stuck with me when I asked you what the hardest part about it was, and you talked about counterparties. And someone asked um, uh, earlier on, Yaroslav asked, how can one properly evaluate counterparty risk in this environment? And I remember you telling me how important that was. So if, if, you, if you've got a few more minutes, if you, if, you, if you could retell that story for those that haven't heard it, and then just talk about it in today's context. Well, yeah, I mean, 08 was essentially, because it was a banking crisis, you know, you know, banks went under. First of all, Best Earns in March, uh, in March of '08, and, and then and then Lehman in September, and then Lehman was allowed to go under. Best Earns got bought by J.P. Morgan, and then so Lehman went under um, on what was it, September the 15th, and then on September the 17th, the Fed started handing out free banking licenses 
to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and let them borrow as much money as they wanted, um, which was very nice of them, particularly to the shareholders and employees of Goldman, um, because um, uh, the Fed forgot to ask for anything in return for the American people. Um, they won't do that again, but um, the problem with the problem in 08 was that every count, every counterparty was suspect um, for about 48 hours. And then that was solved. It's a much bigger problem now um, because it's so, it's, it is much more widespread, it's much outside of the banks. The only thing that you can do with counterparty risk right now is, 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 is to hug those who have access to government money. Right. The biggest companies, people like Pfizer, anheuser Bush, um, even Boeing, of all people, um, which should be bankrupt, right? I mean, you know, 77 yeah. Max scandal, no one's going to be buying planes for a while, Boeing will get a bailout. Um, you know, the small Brazilian maker of, um, of, of interiors for those airplanes will not. Um, you know, big, big airlines will get bailed out, right? They're talking about bailing Lufthansa out again. I mean, um, but it's morally repugnant, but counterparty risk, you've got a hug who gets access to government money, and that is the big banks, the big corporates, because they effectively can access Fed money through the bond market, right? So, you know, small is, is, is bad. Um, uh, and, 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 and frankly, you know, you want to also be, be, be going with counterparties where governments, where their government is more interventionist. The, you know, the more laissez-faire the government is, um, and the more purely capitalist, the worse it is for you as a counterparty right now. You want government largesse. So we well, luckily, really, there's no shortage of that. Well, you, you know, look at the Australian banks, for example. It's something you know a lot about, right? There is no possibility, no matter how, um, no matter how bad things get, that those things will be allowed to be impaired. Now, for the shareholders, it might be a different story. Bank of England has forbidden HSBC and Standard Chartered to pay dividends. That's interesting. Not so good for the equity holders. So it's not necessarily that it means that these things are a certain buy. But what it does mean is that the, the solvency of them as a counterparty is, is very good. So it, it, there is a real risk that everyone stops paying each other. Um, you know, the, the retailers stop paying their landlords, landlords stop paying their owners, um, you know, the counterparties stop paying each other. And we, we saw that in micro in, in Italy in 2014-15, and it can cause a real crisis, just not getting paid. Getting paid, is going to be incredibly important, and once again, you know, you you you, you need to stick with um, with the with the biggest counterparties. So, in terms of us on a farm basis, you know, we're 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 preferring to sell to the big supermarkets, not to the small individual greengrocers, who we normally used to deal with, um, because they're good counterparties as well, and an awful lot of produce gets sold through them. But right now, if I want to get make sure I'm going to get paid, I'm going with a guy. Who's maybe 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 the maybe the credit quality of the, of the individual greengrocers not any worse, but the access the immediate access to capital to bailout capital is going to come from a government. The government's not going to be able to get a, get hold of Fred the greengrocer. He can get hold of Walmart or or, or, or um, Woolworths, and you know whilst oh, they keep a lot more people employed, right? By by bailing them out, that's that's going to be the key. Right. And also the speed with which you can write a single check to these people. Yeah. So there is going to be a big increase in, in defaults. Um, if 
you are a junk bond that's part of a Fed program, your window for liquidity just reopened. Yeah, happy days. If you're not on that list, then it's going to get tough. Yeah. Well, look, we've, we've run way over, um, for which I make no apologies, because it's always, I, I knew it was going to happen when you and I were sitting chat. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got one more question for you, and I just want a yes or no answer. This, this is my favorite question. Will you join Twitter? No, no, no. I mean, I, 144 characters would be way too restricted no, for me. 280 it's, now. They've, they've doubled it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm much too verbose for Twitter. All right. Well, that's Steve. You may not be on Twitter, but uh, thanks for doing this. It's been uh, it's been every every bit as much fun as I thought it would be. And um, we'll 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 have a separate conversation about biotech because there's so much to talk about there, and we didn't even get to it. And um, I'd yes. love to actually have, do have a specific conversation about that because what you're doing is fascinating. So the one thing you. I'm not going to say, Grant, is stay safe. It's really annoying when people tell me to stay safe. It's like, well, it never really occurred to me before, but now you said it. I'm actually going to change my my behaviour. Thank you. Well, uh, give, give my regards to everyone at Volpez. Uh, say hi to Lou for me. Enjoy the virtual wine tasting and, uh, and let's chat again soon. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Take care.